0: Ebony and Ivory live together in perfect harmony, side by side on my piano keyboard. Oh Lord, why don't we? Sings Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. We here at Solution to Violence, along with our guest today, Deborah Laporte and Di Kerrigan, are asking the same question: Why can't we, regardless of the color of our skin, live together in perfect harmony? Welcome, folks. We are Forward Radio, WFMB 106.5 FM. You are listening to Solutions of Balance, a program sponsored by WFMP Radio. I'm Jim Johnson. Jamie McMillan and I are your hosts for Solutions of Balance. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks-Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email at solutions 18 at gmail.com. Our guest today is Deborah LaPorte and Di Kerrigan. Deborah LaPorte spent most of her adult life in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where she taught literature and writing in New Mexico State University. She's also produced plays and published short fiction. Upon retirement, she moved back to Louisville to be near her family. She volunteers with the Earth and Spirit Center as a mindfulness mentor, sharing meditation and mindfulness teachings in under-resourced communities. In twenty twenty two, after the police killing of Brianna Taylor, she joined Di Kerrigan in co-founding ListenLearnAct.org, whose mission is to listen to black leaders, learn all we can about racism, and act to reverse it. As part of that mission, she helps coordinate the racial justice program at Earth and Spirit Center and regularly co facilitates Listen Learn Act classes with Di Kerrigan and the Reverend Joe Phelps. Doc Kerrigan is a Louisville native, but who has lived and worked throughout the U.S. First as a nurse, then as a partner in a medical software development company. She returned to Louisville upon retirement. Doc Kerrigan teaches mindfulness meditation with the Mindfulness Mentors through the Earth and Spirit Center. She also volunteers with Kentucky Refugee Ministries and the Volunteers of American Restorative Justice Program. In 2020, she founded listenlearnact.org with Deborah Laporte in the wake of the Brianna Taylor's Death. Listen Learn Act's mission is to raise awareness of everyday racism and explore the history of how it has been a destructive fabric woven into our society. DI also facilitates with Deborah Laporte and Reverend Joe Phelps' Listen Learn Act anti racism classes at the Earth and Spirit Center, on a regular basis. Welcome Deborah Laporte and Di Kerrigan.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Okay, you're welcome. Glad you're here. Let's get started. Di Kerrigan, you began your professional career as a registered nurse and as a nursing instructor, but soon became a partner in a medical software development company. Why the epiphany concerning issues of fairness, justice, and anti-racist concerns?
2: Thank you, Jim, for having us. I really appreciate being here. I have to say that the epiphany concerning racism and fairness was not top of mind with me during those years of my career. And although I'd always been supportive of civil rights and, and, you know, I signed petitions and marched occasionally in protest, and I've never considered myself a racist, but I, like many white people, did not recognize the depth and pervasiveness of racism and white privilege, but it really hit me between the eyes after Breonna Taylor was killed a couple of years ago.
0: Okay, so Deborah LaPorte, your your life has been much about teaching English at New Mexico State University. What's the pathway from English professor to advocacy for fairness and justice concerning our African-American
1: community? Well, Jim, Studying literature is studying humanity, and I've taught excellent literature by writers of many ethnicities. Often, I have the express intention of exposing my students to the lives of people other than themselves. And for my Latino and African-American students and other minorities, I want them to be able to see their own stories represented. In New Mexico, where I taught, people of Mexican descent make up the majority of the population, but they're often victims of racism and oppression. So when I was selecting books and when I was leading discussions, I tried to bring that to light. And in that particular city, the arts community led the way in justice efforts, organizing rallies against abuse of immigrants and organizing food drives and also bringing the arts into under-resourced communities. So I often find myself giving writing workshops uh, for people that had very different backgrounds from me And in their writings, they expressed their experiences, which were too often scarred by oppression and racism. So it really wasn't a huge leap to advocate for fairness or justice, but I hadn't done anything formal like this before.
0: So both of you consider yourself an anti-racist. What does the term anti-racist mean?
1: Well, I believe in Ibram X. Kendi's definition of anti-racist. He says, becoming anti-racist requires every individual to choose every day to think, act, and advocate for equality. and That will require changing systems and policies that may have gone unexamined for a long time. And he also says correctly, and this is something I'm just beginning to understand, that there is only racism and anti-racism. There's no such thing as not racist. Because if we're standing by silently watching systems of oppression and saying nothing, then we're affirming the white supremacist status quo. So Di and I always say we're on a journey toward anti-racism because we're constantly evolving, we're constantly learning. And this is something that I have, and I'm still learning, but I believe very strongly.
0: So both of you are part of the staff of Loyola's Earth and Spirit Center. What's the purpose of the Earth and Spirit Center?
2: Well, the Earth and Spirit Center is a wonderful place. <laughs> it was founded by Father Joe Mitchell 16 years ago, and it's situated on 27 acres uh, behind St. Agnes Church on Newburgh Road. Not sure if you're familiar with the area, but it's a beautifully wooded area. There's a, a creek at the in the back. And the, the very beginning, of, from inception, there was a three-pronged mission of the Earth and Spirit Center. The first was personal spiritual growth which we do a whole lot of meditation classes there. It's one of the biggest meditation centers in the region. The second prong of the uh, mission is Earth Care. So we offer environmental education, environmental workshops. We invite people to come and and spend time on our grounds because we have greenhouses and gardens and walking trails. It's, It's a very environmentally friendly place. The third prong of the mission is community outreach and the mindfulness mentors program, which we described before, Deb and I both serve on the mindfulness mentors program group that we go out into teach mindfulness into underserved populations that that might not have an opportunity to come to the Earth and Spirit Center. They also offer kids camp odyssey camps in the summertime. So that's part of the outreach program. And I've been on the board of directors there. And in recent years, we wanted to expand our mission, specifically the community outreach mission. And so what we did was decided to hire Joe Phelps, Reverend Joe Phelps, about maybe about two and a half years ago, to be the director of this newly formed social justice program. And it's become a very important part of the center's mission since then.
0: So, Don Kerrigan, you were also a volunteer at Kentucky Refugee Ministries. Tell us a little bit about that organization.
2: That's another, (laughs) so many wonderful organizations. That's another very wonderful uh, nonprofit that provides resettlement services to refugees from all over the world in countries like Syria or Cuba, Afghanistan, Somalia, Burma. These are just a few of some of the countries, most recently from Ukraine. And the goal is to take these families out of danger and out of the refugee camps in their home country and relocate them into the United States. KRM, Kentucky Refugee Ministry, provides services and resources that help these people get back on, get up on their feet, become self-sufficient and integrate into our community. KRM works with U.S., the United States Resettlement Program that provides transportation to get the families here to Kentucky and then we set up housing for them and food, get them, the kids into the schools, help the families learn to speak English, get medical care if they need it, get them into classes to help them start gaining citizenship to the United States. We provide job readiness workshops to help the newcomers get jobs. It's a, just a wonderful organization and has settled thousands of refugees over the past 30 years. And my work with them mostly is to deliver food from the Dare to Care food pantry to the refugees, but I've also worked in setting up uh, new apartments or houses when they first get here. So Di, in addition, you
0: work with Volunteers of America Restorative Justice. So restorative justice is gradually becoming part of our legal system, and restorative practices is being implemented as an alternative to punitive systems now being used in the Jefferson County public school system. Tell us about restorative justice.
2: The restorative justice process is dramatically different from the traditional criminal justice uh, system. The traditional criminal justice system asks what laws have been broken and what should the punishment be for the offender? But in restorative justice, the question is what harm has been done and who's responsible for repairing the harm and how can it be repaired? It's a volunteer, both the victim and the offender are vo- volunteer to participate in the restorative justice process. And the offender must be willing to accept responsibility for the actions that caused the harm. And the victim and their support group must be willing to meet with the offender and the offender's support group to discuss how the offense impacted them and what needs to be done to repair the harm. And this process is centered on making things right for all parties involved uh, while enabling creative solutions not used within the traditional justice system. And studies have shown that this type of program can reduce recidivism of offenders and increase victim satisfaction of the the judicial process. So my work with that organization is uh, as a volunteer, I'm a facilitator for those meetings between the offender and the victim.
0: Okay, so as part of the intent of restorative justice to, is to diminish the time spent in prisons or maybe eliminate prison altogether?
2: So it serves to eliminate prison altogether. If you go through this restorative justice process successfully and everyone agrees on what, the, what there's an agreement at the end of these meetings, that the offender says I will do this to repair the harm and everyone signs it. And if, if indeed the offender meets the agreement, everything is dropped out of court. It doesn't go any further and it's not on anyone's record. So it really, really is a step of, you know, detouring what could go into a horrible situation. This, we work with mostly kids that are under the age of 21. And as you know, once kids get in this cycle, it's very hard to break once they get in the, in the incarceration and the prison cycle.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So folks, tell us about Listen, Learn, Act. When was it formed? What's the purpose? How do you become a member? Are men allowed to join?
1: <laughs> <laughs> men are allowed, they are even encouraged to join. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's I want It started out as
0: a, a, a women's white women's organization, right?
1: We did. I will I will explain that in a in just a second. Yes, it started out as a white women's organization. But I want to say from the beginning that Guy and I are not experts on race or racial issues, and we are trying to learn, and that has been a lot of the purpose. We're progressives. We both, as she said earlier, always been progressives. We've been quick to sign a petition, to go to a march, to send a check when needed. But when Brianna Taylor was killed in her home by police in 2020, and when that event was kept from the public for two months before it became known, and when all the distorted versions started to come out, we were just sickened. And we felt we needed to do more. We felt very strongly that white women needed to do more. Why white women? Because we are the largest demographic in this country. Because white women tend to be a little passive, a little silent on issues. And we felt if we could, we felt if we could unite, we could possibly be a force. So Di and I sent out an email. Maybe two days after, maybe the day after we heard about Breonna Taylor, we were just both outraged and and filled with despair. And um, we sent out an email email to about. 50 of our female, white female friends and relatives, and asked them if they wanted to join us in a united response and call for justice. And within 24 hours, we had heard back from over 100 people, which was twice the number that we had contacted, their answer being yes. So we knew that we had touched a nerve. And we suspected many of them felt like we did, but they didn't know what to do. So we decided to form this organization and we called it White Women Demand Justice for Brianna. Uh, We wanted to do something to fight injustice and we wanted to make sure, we still want to make sure we do not further harm the black community in doing so. So we tapped into the knowledge of the group members and we created a mission statement. We are committed to speaking out against racial injustice and police brutality. We're committed to listening and learning from the Black leaders and the Black community. And we're committed to breaking white silence by taking action that keeps the Black community and anti-racism centered in everything that we do. So we began trying to learn all that we could. And probably the first thing that we learned is that to the Black community, this event was an outrage, but it was no surprise. Police violence in the black community happens with frequency. Cover-ups happen with frequency. It's systemic. We as white people have often believed those events were anecdotal, but they are not. We became much more aware of the depths of systemic racism. We're not dealing with one or two or even 10 horrific events, but just layers and layers of inequity. And so in January of 2021, We changed our name to listenlearnact.org to reflect our our deepened understanding.
0: So like the organization Stand Up for Racial Justice, Listen Learn Act is an all-white organization, as you pointed out. Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers asked white supporters to educate the white community concerning racial issues. Is that the purpose of Listen Learn Act? Does Listen Learn Act Sometimes connect with African American groups as well? If so, what groups?
1: Well, we believe that our role is exactly what Stokely Carmichael describes. We're primarily interested in education, first of ourselves and then of other whites, although there are black members in our group. Um, but as I said, we're still, we're always trying to learn and we're always trying to pass on that information. When we first formed our organization, we heard a black activist pretty much say what Stokely Carmichael said. She said, what white people can do is learn something and then go back and tell other white people. So that has been sort of a a North Star guiding principle for us. We organized in 2020 during quarantine. So most of what we've done has been uh, through email and Facebook. Was just sharing awareness and encouraging action. And so we created a series of of educational materials. The first one, these were the first messages we we created were called Listen, Learn Acts. And they were real short missives that would contain information about an issue or an event and then very urgently uh, ask our group members to act by writing a letter, making a phone call, sending a donation, whatever was needed. And after that, we created another series called The Unveiling. And this is one that reveals uh, details about our history that are very little known to us. The article that I sent to the Courier Journal called Sold Down the River, that was originally composed as an unveiling. We also do a series called The Spotlight, And these celebrate remarkable people and organizations in the black community that we as white people are basically unaware of. And we also do a series called, Did You Know? And these tend to be kind of fun facts, such as, did you know the first master distiller was a black man named Nearest Green? Did you know the most significant explorer of Mammoth Cave was an enslaved man? Or did you know the Lone Ranger was based on a black Texas Ranger? So these and other uh, educational mis- uh, materials is mostly the way that we worked until recently when we teamed up with Reverend Joe Phelps. So
0: uh, is the Listen Learn, Act a pacifist organization, or are there conditions that might permit you to support war?
1: As an organization, we really don't address pacifism and war. We're much more focused on simply racial justice. And so I I don't personally, I, you know, I'm a pacifist, but I can't really speak for the organization in that way.
0: Okay, that's fine. We know the work of anti-racism is long-term and will take consistent effort from many people to move the needle. How can we keep people engaged in the work of anti-racism after the emotion of an event has calmed? after the protests have died and people become distracted this is really an important question
1: yeah yeah we do try to keep our members updated on issues and events and we but one thing that we we noticed that after the protests the passion was died down and people kind of got distracted and went back to their everyday lives So Diane and I developed something we call the quarter. We it's a quarterly and it's called the four-week anti-racism challenge. We call it the arc. And this was intentionally created to keep people thinking about watching for racism. The way it works is we have one coming up. I want to promote it right now. It starts on July 1st. Every Friday for four weeks, we'll send out an email with a list of about 10 to 12 anti-racism activities. And that might be read an article or watch a film created by Black artists or write a letter to an official or maybe journal about your experiences with racism. And we ask people to complete three from the list. And that keeps anti-racism in our minds, keeps us watching for things for that, that month. And I want to invite you and your listeners to join us for the next ARC, which will start on July 1st. And you can sign up for it at listen, learn, Act. .org. Can I go back to the question about Reverend Joe Phelps? Sure. Let Di talk to us about our anti racism classes.
0: Yes, sure. So, Di, I know you teach classes with Reverend Joe Phelps, uh, Earth and Spirit Center, concerning live, life, and that. So, tell us about that.
2: Okay. Um, first, I'd like to give you a little background for those that don't know Joe Phelps. He was the Reverend um, of Highland Baptist Church for 22 years, and uh, which is a very progressive Baptist church, but he's been a warrior for racial justice for just as long. About 20 years ago, he co-founded Empower West with Dr. Kevin Cosby, who is a, a black minister here in Louisville and the president of Simmons College. So when Joe took the job at the Earth and Spirit Center as the director of social justice, he began to look for allies to help him build this program. And he knew of the work Debbie and I were doing with Listen, Learn, Act, because he and his wife were both members of our our group. And so he asked us to join forces with him, and we were just delighted to do that. When we met, we weren't sure exactly how to create racial justice courses. We're We're not experts on this, as Deb said earlier. But we've done two classes so far with Joe, and they're centered around the document, A Path Forward for Louisville. And it was drafted right after Breonna Taylor was killed by Sadiqa Reynolds, who is the CEO and president of the Urban League, along with many other black leaders here in Louisville. And it was sent to Mayor Fisher and the Metro Council. It was also sent to the Courier Journal. And with the document, it's a 28 page document, but it details five major categories where there are inequities between white and black people and people of color in Louisville. And these five areas were affordable housing, police reform, education equity, mental health and health equity, and jobs. And the document states the problem in each area what could be done about it, how much it would cost to fix it, and who's responsible for getting it done, which is (laughs) incredible. So what we decided to do for our classes is take each component of the path forward and bring in black leaders who were experts in each of these areas to help us unpack each issue. But we found that there is a big overlap in all of these areas one very closely related to the next, and therefore it gets compounded. So fixing one problem alone won't solve the bigger issues. So far we've studied policing, housing, and education. And from those classes, we've been doing this about a year, subgroups have formed. One group formed uh, to keep track of housing issues, affordable housing issues, and reporting back to the larger group as to what we should be paying attention to. After our education course, another group formed to volunteer at some of the most challenged schools in the city that don't have active PTAs. So with these classes, we call on these our black leaders who are experts to lead our discussions. For example, when we studied education equity, our guest speakers for the six-week course, each week we'd have a a different speaker. These included Sadiqa Reynolds, who's again, President and CEO of Louisville Urban League, Diane Porter, who is the Chair of Jefferson County uh, Board of Education, Representative Attica Scott joined us, and who was at the time in Frankfurt, literally voting on CRT legislation. And during a recess, she got on uh, Zoom to join our class. We had uh, one week, we had Dr. Corey Shaw, who is also on the Board of Education and a prominent black pastor. We had Dr. Raymond Burse of the NAACP. And in our last class for education, we had Dr. Ricky Jones, who chairs the American African Studies Department at UofL. So all these guests were powerful voices to our all white audience. They brought incredible insights that we were really able to understand some some depth to these issues. Uh, we have our next Listen, Learn, Act class coming up in September, September 13th. It starts. It's going to be a six-week course, once a week on Tuesday mornings. And in September's class, we'll examine the mental health crisis in the Black community, which is really inflamed by racism and the pandemic. But we'll also be looking at health equity. So uh, we're very uh, excited about that. And just so everyone knows, all these classes are offered at no charge. We really want to include the public and get people involved.
0: All of those guests that you just mentioned that appeared at Listen Learn Act, guest speakers, have been on Solution Balance, except for Raymond Burke. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so we're working really hard to expose the injustice.
2: Good, good, good. uh,
0: Yeah, so let's get back to racial issues that that are much concerned uh, on the part of Listen, Learn, Act. So Deborah Laporte, the Lubbocker Journal, recently published your op-ed, quote, learning the horrors of our Kentucky history should make us uncomfortable, end quote. That op-ed puts you and Listen, Learn, Act squarely in the middle of the debate over critical race theory and the teaching of Native American and African American history in our public and parochial schools. Your article explains that some claim without evidence that our public schools are teaching critical race theory. The same people that are accusing public schools of teaching critical race theory are also concerned about the African American history that is being taught in our public and parochial schools. They claim that teaching African American history will make white students feel uncomfortable. Your op-ed explains that American history should make people feel uncomfortable. The reason US history should make people feel uncomfortable, as you explained, is documented by the New York Times article, quote, the 1619 Project, end quote. That uncomfortable history is also documented by historians like Edward Baptist, Ron Barber, Steven Pinker, Tracy K. Meyer k fossil carter g woodson and many others that uncomfortable history demonstrates that america's past includes 264 years of brutal slavery 100 years of jim Crow oppression over 400 years of institutionalized racism so your point is well taken here that nefarious history should make people feel uncomfortable no righteous person should feel comfortable with a history to demonstrate such an unjust institutional system. But I wonder, is there even a more sinister intent on the part of those demanding the state government impede the teaching of African-American history? If students learn that history, unquestionable nefarious paths, want principled people, want to change institutions that have, and still support, racist policies aren't the people who claim that African-American history, that might make their children feel uncomfortable. is the same people who want to protect the status quo, even though institutionalized racism still exists within our geopolitical and economic system.
1: Well, yes, and yes, and yes. I can't really speak about people's motives. I tend to agree with what, what you're thinking here but we were frankly shocked to learn how many people have no interest in creating racial justice and they actually work fervently against solutions to the problems, gaslighting us saying there are no problems, no interest at all in making redress for 400 years of crimes against African-Americans. That has been shocking to me. So yes, I, I agree with you as far as what their motives are. I think they are many and varied depending on the person. I think those in power, many of those in power want to stay in power, others are just uninformed, others are fearful, I'm not sure, but there is a, a large segment of the population that is working actively to keep things exactly as they have been.
0: Yeah, so my colleagues, Jamie McMillan and I are former Jefferson County public school teachers. We are concerned about the whitewashing of African-American history, not only because impeding the teaching of that history diminishes the history of institutionalized racism, but we are also concerned because impeding the teaching of African-American history extinguishes the opportunity to learn about thousands of African-Americans, intellectuals who have made extraordinary contributions to the development of our country. Learning of these African-American intellectuals provides role model for black students and destroys the myth that African-Americans are lazy and suffer from a character flaw. Is there a reason why some whites do not want both black and white students to learn about the thousands of African-American intellectuals that exist here in this country?
2: That's a very good question, Jim. Again, taking the lead from black leaders, I can tell you that when we asked Diane Porter about this topic in one of our classes, she said, and I quote, we don't teach hate in Jefferson County schools, we teach facts. She said that she doesn't understand the concept of trying to tell school districts what they can and cannot teach or what book they can or cannot teach from. Her point is, why wouldn't we want the students to know their history? And recently, we interviewed Lamont Collins, who is the founder and curator at Route 101 African American Museum. His mission at the museum is to teach the true history of African Americans to blacks and whites alike. He said it is to make all of us better ancestors. And if you take a tour at the museum, you learn about African heritage, and you learn about the many great contributions Blacks have given this country. It really is a great lesson for all of us.
0: So, Deborah LaPorte, let's get back to you and your current journal article, Learning the Horrors of Kentucky History Should Make Us Feel Uncomfortable. That article tells the story of African-Americans in shackles and Blacks kept in pens. As you point out, the setting for the story was on the banks of the Ohio River, here, in Louisville, Kentucky, stories like these destroy the myth that slave owners in Kentucky treat their slaves more humanely than did slave owners in the Deep South. Okay, but I've heard white relatives respond to this kind of stories by stating the claim, quote, but I've never owned a slave and I'm not responsible for the slavery that happened 160 years ago. So, why should I be held responsible for an institution that was not of my making? And why should Blacks receive government handouts when slavery hasn't existed since 1865? What's your answer, folks?
1: Well, Jim, this question reflects a lack of historical understanding. And this is one major consequence of our inadequate education on race. We as a nation don't understand the depth of gratitude we owe to the Black black Americans and their ancestors. Reverend Kevin Cosby, president of Simmons College has said, if you had 10 slaves, you were well off. If you had 50 slaves, you were fabulously wealthy. If you had 4 million slaves, you were the United States of America. (laughs) Because of slavery and the many industries and businesses that profited from it, in a very short time, the United States went from being a very poor, inconsequential country to the second most powerful country in the world at the time of the Civil War. And it wasn't just the South. In the 18th century, New York was second only to South Carolina in the number of slaves it held. A careful look at history tells you how many of our institutions were built by slave labor or the sale of slaves for funds or a business that depended on slavery. Institutions right here in Louisville. The horrific practices of redlining and Jim Crow kept black people from advancing financially and socially for long after they gained freedom but our education doesn't teach us these truths so we hear we continue to hear these arguments and I just want to say for those of you that are struggling to talk to friends and family about these issues I suggest you take our class in July at the Earth and Spirit Center on having difficult conversations around race, and Di's going to give more details on that in a little bit. So
0: here in Kentucky, the Republican State Legislature recently passed Senate Bill 1. SB 1 passed over Governor Andy Beshear's veto. It's now law, even though the Association for the Study of African American Life and History explains that this bill is somewhat softer than similar bills passed in southern states, SB1 is still designed to impede the teaching of Native American and African American history in our public and parochial schools. SB1 is also designed to impede the teaching of the LGBTQ movement and women's rights movement. How does the Live, Learn, and Act institution plan to react to SB1, now Kentucky law? what advice would you give to Kentucky teachers who are responsible for teaching U.S. history under a law that is designed to impede the teaching of Native American and African American history?
2: Well, Listen, Learn Act works to educate, and as Lamont Collins says, for all of us to become better ancestors. We aren't equipped to give Kentucky teachers advice on how to react to a newly passed law. But as a citizen, I can protest and I can sign petitions or write letters to my elected officials. And through our Listen Learn Act group, we encourage our members to do the same. But I believe the school boards and teachers are the ones that must decide how to move forward under this new legislation. And hopefully when the next election comes around, those representatives will be out and teachers will have better representation in Frankfurt.
0: So one of the major issues now faced by the Jefferson County residents is busing, an issue that's been at the forefront for decades. Court-ordered busing began in Jefferson County's public school system in 1976. Over the years, partly because of decisions made by the JCPS Board of Education and partly because of a change in the law, busing students, the schools outside of their neighborhood resides, has diminished. Somewhat. The busing of students that has continued has rested by and large on the shoulders of black students. The Jefferson County Board of Education recently voted to give African American students a choice. They can either choose to attend a school close to their reside, or they can take a bus to a mostly white school in the suburbs. University of Louisville Political Science Professor Dr. Barry Clayton, for one believes that giving African-American students the opportunity to attend schools near their reside will not only enforce busing, it will end the possibility of creating integrated, diverse school populations. What's your thoughts?
1: We were, as Di mentioned earlier, we helped uh, facilitate a course at the Earth and Spirit Center this spring that studied this issue very carefully. And I do have great concerns about resegregating or I should say further segregating schools and further concentrating Black children in high-poverty schools. But as you said, we know the burden of desegregation and busing has been on children from the West End. And we know that it's led to problems with attendance and often prevents them from becoming involved in their school after school activities that might deepen their connection to school and, and increase their chances for success. We know that West End parents many times may not be able to drive out to Valley High School to pick up a child after cheerleading practice, for example. So there there are many, it's a very complex issue and um, we're, we're still learning about it, but because of our class, we were able to watch it unfold with the wonderful teachers that Di named earlier, Raymond Burst, Diane Porter, Corey Shaw, Attica Scott. And what I felt when the new assignment plan passed unanimously through the school board was real concern, but I have to say that there are fine and knowledgeable people on that board who know a lot more than I do and who care very deeply. And I I think they must see this as the best of two very problematic options. And so right now I'm waiting to see.
0: Yeah, as, as a former JCPS teacher taught 31 years I thought the diversity that occurred as a result of court order busing was to the benefit of bo- both African-American students and white students. And I, I hate to see that uh, diversity end, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's a very complex problem. And it, it was really unfair that the burden of busing placed mostly on African-American kids. They're, I know they're also looking at the magnet school issue. Uh, because that structure has been unfair to African-American students as well. So hopefully, uh, together with that, restructuring the, the Magnus School system uh, will help uh, provide a, a more diverse environment. So let's let's move on, though. This question it really has very little to do with the topic here, but uh, I, I just can't not ask this question because of some 44,000 U.S. citizens that lost their lives to gun violence in 2021. Because of the recent mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and by the way, a racist crime, the killings that occurred at Rod Elementary in Baldillo, Texas, that took the lives of 19 elementary students and two teachers, and was the 30th school shooting in K through 12 schools in 2022 already. And because each year, the number of Americans dying as a result of gun violence, we have to ask the question. Does Listen, Learn, Act support increased gun safety laws? So what kind of laws would you support?
1: Well, I'm going to say this as an individual rather than as Listen, Learn, Act. I support increased gun safety laws for all of us, including bans on assault rifles and red flag laws. But this is a racial justice issue. According to every town, Black Americans are disproportionately impacted by gun violence. They experience 10 times the gun homicides, 18 times the gun assault injuries, and nearly three times the fatal police shootings of white Americans. And the Brady organization points out that Black people are not inherently more violent. White men, for instance, commit the majority of mass shootings, and when faced with poverty, unemployment, and single parent households, they're more likely commit homicide and other violent crimes than Black men, confronting a similar set of conditions. Currently in Louisville, many leaders in the Black community are pushing for change. Tim Finley, who was a mayor candidate, was very strong on his uh, support for, for stronger gun laws. Democratic Senate candidate Charles Booker has passionately called for common sense gun safety, and he calls out senators from Kentucky who accept large donations from the NRA and other gun lobbyists. Louisville Urban League also promotes gun violence reduction and last week called for participation in the Wear Orange activities, which is a a national gun violence reduction program. So these are leaders that we trust and we completely support and promote those efforts as a group, as listen, Lerna.
0: You folks connect, the Listen, Learn, Act recently partnered with Lean Into Louisville. Can you tell us about Lean Into Louisville and and that partnership?
2: Yes. Through our work with Joe Felds, we connected with Joy McAtee, who is the director of Lean Into Louisville. Uh, Lean Into Louisville is an initiative that was launched in 2019 by Mayor Fisher to explore and confront the history and legacy of discrimination and inequality in Louisville and they seek partners that have their boots on the ground to do the work in social and racial justice areas, and they contacted us to to partner with them. So it's a combination of our group, which is listenlearnact.org, along with the Earth and Spirit Center and Lean Into Louisville, and we have some really exciting programs lined up. We've already started probably for the next year, we'll have events in, you know, as a collaborative team effort. The first one of these is coming up on June 20th in uh, honor of, you know, Juneteenth. Uh, Lamont Collins, again, the founder of Roots 101 African American Museum, will be speaking to us uh, on how to be a good white ally. Uh, We're also offering workshops in July, on having difficult conversations around race. And this will be led by Corey Lockhart and will be two separate meetings over Zoom. And this gives concrete strategies on how to talk to people with other views on racism and that might not necessarily agree with you instead of just avoiding them or getting into arguments with them. And then in September, we have our next class coming up at the Earth and Spirit Center again, is sponsored by Lean Into Louisville. And this class will be concentrating on the mental health um, issues and just health equity in general. Then we also have in September, Emily Bingham, who is one of our members, will be reading from her new book, My Old Kentucky Home. So we have lots of things lined up already. And we just got into the partnership with Lean Into Louisville. So we want to be able to uh, reach a wider audience. And we think that Through these partnerships, we are able to do so. So you're referring
0: to Dr. Emily Bingham, a descendant of the now famous Bingham family, who had once built a media empire that included the Courier-Journal, WHAS Radio, and WHAS-TV. We think it is important for our listeners to know that the historian Emily Bingham is the author of the book My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song* as well as the book, Irrepressible, The Jazz Age Life of Henrietta Bingham. Emily Bingham has appeared on local as well as national radio and TV for the purpose of discussing these two books. The research conducted by Emily Bingham demonstrates that she, like our guest Deborah Laporte and Di Garrigan, is also an anti-racist. Just wanted to point that out. Uh, I'm also a member of the solid uh, uh, Group, Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, and I'm looking at what Listen, Learn, Active has done and, and what you are doing, and I think it would make an incredible partnership because they are very much concerned about the African-American history and getting that history published. I'm hoping that you guys, and it's great that you are partnering with other groups. We worked for months, Gay Edelman, others, putting together a coalition for the purpose of opposing legislation in the Kentucky House and Senate that were designed to impede the teaching of African American and Native American history. Those bills were also designed to impede the teaching of the history of the LBGDQ and the women's rights movement as well. And I see what you're saying, the question about people getting tired, working so hard, and and people have other things to do. So that's what happened to us. We worked for months. And every time I put together another Zoom conference, there were less people there. Mm -hmm. But we did make a difference. I saw a national put together a map, a U.S. map, that was color-coded. The states colored red were states that passed mostly in the South, very strong anti-African-American history bills. Kentucky colored brown. So... Kentucky passed SB1, it certainly is an uh, anti-African American history bill, but not as strong as, as the red states in the South, according to us all. So, what I'm thinking is, if we're working together, if we're building coalitions, and I don't know, I wish I had known about you guys when we were putting that coalition together, we can make a difference.
2: I agree, Jim. I think that it's a united effort that is going to make change. That's the only way we're going to get the change is a united effort and working alone in what your group working alone. You can get things done, but if you have a critical mass, you can get a lot more done, reach a lot more people. And I think what I found, I uh, I spoke to a group last night. What I found is that when people are willing to listen, a lot of people just don't know. So educating people is so important in this in these efforts. And we found that ourselves, but we found that people have open hearts often. And so we've got to go in masses. We've got to go together any way we can partner, any way we can unite.
0: Absolutely. For those interested in reading about the African-American experience, we recommend the following list of books. Michael Freeland's Lift Your Voice Like a Trumpet, White Clergy and the Civil Rights and Anti-War Movements. David Barber, Hard Rain Fell, SDS and Why It Failed. Adam Fairclaw's To Redeem the Soul of America, The Southern Christian Leadership Conference and Martin Luther King Jr. Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Robert Smith's Racism in the Post Civil Rights Era. Now You See It, Now You Don't. Daniel Lutz, Salem to Saigon. The Vietnam War and its tragic impact on the civil rights movement and African-Americans. Kate Fossils, Ann Braden and the struggle for racial justice in the Cold War South. Marvin Obespin and Blame Hudson's Two Centuries of Black Louisville. Lisa Mullins, Diane Nash, the fire of the civil rights movement. Tracy K. Meyer, civil rights and the gateway to the South. Tracy K. Meyer, to live peacefully together. The American Friends Service Committee Campaign for Open Housing. Tracy K. Meyer and Kate Fossil's Freedom on the Border, An Oral History of the Civil Rights Movement in Kentucky. John Lewis and Michael D'Orso, Walk with the Wind. Stephen Otis, Let the Trumpet Sound, A Life of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, This book recommended by Asala. Tanisha Coates, Between the World and Me. The following books are recommended by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. Adama Baugh, Accused, My Story of Injustice. Adama Baugh, a 13-year-old growing up in Eastern Harlem. Nikki Grimes, Legacy, Women Poets of the Harlem Renaissance. Nicole Hannah-Jones and Renee Watson, The 1619 Project, Born on the Water. Keekla Magoon's book, The Highest Tribute. Thurgood Marshall's Life, Leadership and Legacy. Abi Zaboi, The People Remember. These books are recommended for young readers. John Lewis, Andrew Aiden, Nate Powell's March, book one, two, and three. Matt Lamas' book, This Is How We Do It. Michael Tyler's book, The Skin You Live In. Kwame Mabala's book, Black Boy Joy. Okay, Uh, so folks, we are out of time here. We want to thank Deborah Laporte and Di Kerrigan. It's been a pleasure having you join us today as our guest on Solutions to Violence. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Our interview featuring Deborah Laporte and Doc Kerrigan airs again June 14th and 15th. To listen to the live stream, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Doc Kerrigan and Deborah Laporte will be placed in the WFMP archives June 15, 2022. To visit our archives, go to forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, then the Solutions to Balance program that features Deborah Laporte and Doc Kerrigan. For more information and a scheduling of programming that will surprise, delight, and challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org. I'm Jim Johnson, Jamie McMillan, and I are your hosts for Solutions to Balance. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Thanks for listening.